the trials of Jesus begin. At this stage, Judas, and by the way, time-wise, it's after midnight. It may be, and we're not sure exactly, but it may be something like 3 in the morning, somewhere in that vicinity. Judas uh, has led the crowd to Gethsemane. And we'll remember from the last message that there were priests that were there. There were temple police. There were soldiers. And it amounted to, literally, we know, hundreds of people had come with lanterns and torches and weapons. And uh, Judas Iscariot betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last time, and he did it by way of a kiss. Peter then had an emotional reaction to that. And if you remember, he cuts off the ear of Malchus, one of the servants of the, high, of the priest. And then the other person that we saw was the Lord Jesus Christ, who was in absolute total control of everything, as seen in verse 4. He knew all things that were coming on him. There were no surprises. We saw how he compassionately, first of all, and as a shepherd, protected his apostles. So he reminds the crowd as they come that they came for him and not his apostles. He also compassionately healed, even in the midst of this situation, Malchus's ear. And above all, what he's doing is he reminded us, uh, is particularly in verse 11, was that he willingly submits to the Father's will, which was to bear the cup, to go to the cross of Calvary, to bear the wrath the penalty against sin. So as we come into our current context, beginning in verse 12, we now come to his arrest and the beginning of his trials, and we say trials, plural. Now you notice that I read from verses 12 to 14, as I said, in the verses 19 to 24. We will deal with Peter's denials separately, which is in between in verses 15 to 18. So it's not an intent to ignore that, nor to put it in context as far as timing. I will do that, Lord willing, but we still want to understand what is going on, and uh, I think you'll see why I put it together the way I did as we go. I say trials plural because most of you probably understand, there could be a few that don't, is there were multiple trials that took place. In fact, there are actually six trials that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to face. Three of these trials are religious in nature, and three of them are civil in nature. And I believe in order to help us appreciate where we're going to go through chapter 18 and 19, it is important for us to understand the context, to understand the magnitude of this mockery the magnitude of this illegality that is going to take place. And I would ask that you even watch and prayfully consider before the Lord, just as we're looking at this, just how sinful man can be and to accomplish his purposes. And on the other side of the coin, because people are always looking for it, is to absolutely, you want to see the love of God, and it is certainly seen as we continue, not just in this morning's message, but as we continue on in how the Lord Jesus Christ even treats his enemies and even treats those who are falsely, as we will see, accusing him and so forth and so on. It is absolutely astounding 
to my mind, what it uh, brings back about the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was so focused on obedience to the Father's will and then the sin nature of man. It'll hopefully help us to better appreciate when it talks about, we read on the verses this morning, uh, in one of the songs there, and it was also up there, the humility, uh, how humility is so important. And you see the humbleness of the Lord Jesus Christ when we know from last week he could have called thousands of angels, literally 12,000 or more if he wanted uh, to take that. So we need to consider a couple of things, and what do we need to consider? We need to understand, and I want to spend some time on this this morning, or uh, the bulk of the time on this, is that we understand biblically the authorities that were in place and what the laws were. If you don't understand what the authorities uh, were in place and what the laws were, you really will not appreciate, though you will read it academically, uh, you will not appreciate the extent of the humility of Jesus Christ or the extent of man's sin and the violations that took place and the mockery that went on. So let me start pretty basic in chapter 12, uh, sorry, chapter 18, verse 12, the first part of it. It says, so the Roman cohort and the commander of the offices of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. I read the whole verse. Just the first part here, though, the Roman cohort and the commander of the officer of the Jews. As far as the authorities, there were two. Number one, there was the Roman soldiers, or Rome. Those are the civil authorities. They were over all of it. <clears throat> we know that. Rome was in power. But there also is the offices of the Jews representing the religious powers of the day, the Jewish powers and their authorities. Now let's talk about them one at a time. First of all, the civil authorities. I'd like you to turn, as you keep uh, your finger here, to our responsive reading, Romans chapter 13. Now, I have taught on this passage in the past, but I want to highlight a few things and let us understand this. Rome was the power. <clears throat> Excuse me. Rome was the authority, <clears throat> the civil authority over the Jews and over the Lord Jesus Christ at the time. And to put it in place, I want you, I will highlight some of the things in the verses, and you can look at it. I want you to notice that it is God that puts the authorities in place. Notice verse 1, and I won't read the whole verse. For there is no authority except from God. We need to understand that. And you know, <clears throat> I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I want you to understand something here. We are involved in the middle of a political situation ourselves right now. As we know, an election year is upon us, and we have the privilege to vote. And I'm not here to deal with all of that right now, other than to say this. It is amazing to me how Christians, as well, think by just changing the government, everything else is going to change. You don't know your scriptures very well if that's the case. Now. We are, and we do have the privilege to vote and ought to be involved in that and whatever the laws of our land, but it wouldn't matter whether we had a dictator over us or not. In God's eyes, we ought to be subjected to those authorities as far as the laws go, and I'll expand on that in a minute. Why? We need to understand because it is God that puts them in place ultimately. 
I'm not going to turn to the book of Daniel, but it very clearly states there that it is God who raises kings up and it is God that puts people down. That does not take away from us our responsibility as far as voting where we have that privilege in the United States of America or anything of that nature at all. But we do need to understand that they are the representatives regardless of whether they treat us correctly or not. I wish the government would get a hold of this. They are the representatives of God. Look at verse 4. For it is a minister of God. The civil authorities, and we need to understand that, and that's why we ought to abide by the laws of the land. <clears throat> and we can do the things that they allow us to do, but we're to abide by whoever's in power. For it is a minister of God for you for good. That is their responsibility before God. Now, whether they carry out and administrate those responsibilities correctly is not the issue. <clears throat> we need to understand as believers, <clears throat> what would you do if you were living in China? <clears throat> Excuse me. Or you were living in uh, other parts of the world. You are to abide by the authorities. That doesn't mean, and you'll see that in a minute, there are times when you will not agree with them. But you need to recognize that God has allowed them to be in place and they represent God. Ultimately, a theocracy is what is important. And that is what started and that's how we'll finish with God ultimately in control. But he allows them and they are to recognize, and here's what they don't catch, verse 6. They are accountable to God. Notice verse 6. Because of this, you shall also pay your taxes. Why? For rulers, or for they, are servants of God. Now, whether or not the government recognizes that, in most cases, they do not. They think they are the ultimate power. They think they are the ones that are in control. They think they are the ones who they can do what they want and they're not held accountable. Not true at all. I'll tell you right now, you're just dealing with the United States of America, every president, every senator, every representative, every mayor, every all the way down the line will one day give account to God because they were allowed to be in that power by God and they are supposed to be representing righteousness and they are supposed to be representing God. Whether they do that, they will answer for that. But we ought to see that God puts them in place. Now, by the way, when is it right to disobey? We ought to be subject to them, including on April 15th, whether you like it or not, filling out your tax return in the United States, or if you do it before that, whatever, unless they go contrary to Scripture. Now, I am not so naive to think that there aren't people who think all kinds of things about that, but I will really lose track of where we are if I get involved in that. I did do that when I taught in Romans. But... You need to understand that primarily when we're talking about contrary to God, let me give you two primary things that we definitely see in Scripture. Number one, if they are asking you to bow down and worship them, you don't do it. You never set up an idol before God, including those in authority. And yet you are to honor them because of their position. And certainly, for example, one easy thing for you to remember is back in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That crossed the line. The second area that crosses the line is when they tell you you cannot preach Jesus Christ or the gospel. 
because we have that as an obligation directly from God. That is why in such places, as I mentioned China, or other places around the world, that they are meeting privately and they are continuing and they are facing persecution. Why? Because they're told they cannot preach the gospel and Christians are refusing to do that. Barring those two major issues, all the other things are side issues that you, there'll be disagreement on and here and that and so forth. And I'm amazed at how many Christians try to come up with excuses why not to obey government when it really is opinionated and so forth and so on. But unless you're being asked to bow down and worship a God other than the one true God or to preach the gospel, basically the bottom line from Scripture is submit to them even if they don't carry out their duties right. And you're going to see that that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Rome was a dictatorship. Rome did not handle its subjects well in many cases, including the Lord Jesus Christ. And he submitted to it. He submitted to it except in those areas where it comes very clear that the line was going to be crossed. So Rome was the authority. <clears throat> Their purpose, according to the passage in Romans, and you can look at it again, was to represent God. Now, Rome didn't do a good job of that. I don't believe our government is doing a good job of that, but that's a side trip. They simply are to represent God. They are there also to keep the peace. I'm just giving you a summary here. They are also, interestingly enough, there to punish those who do evil, not those who do good. And that's what the scriptures tell us. That doesn't mean that they will carry that out well, again, but that is their responsibility. It's to keep the peace and to reward those who basically are abiding by the system. The bottom line, one word, justice. That's why they're there. Civil governments are to represent God. They've been put in place by God, and they ought to be carrying on justice. And I would challenge most everybody in this room or around the world to find anywhere where any government under any situation is interested primarily in representing God and providing justice. That's usually not the case. On this particular occasion in our text, so understand that that's the authority that they had. They were the power. God allowed that. On this particular occasion, all of those soldiers were there, as I mentioned last week, for one purpose, and that was crowd control. That's all. They had authority over the religious uh, authorities, as we'll see in a moment, but <clears throat> they had allowed them to do certain things, and because it was near the Passover, and there were many people, and because they anticipated resistance by Jesus Christ and his disciples, the religious authorities were able to get the Roman soldiers to come. Their responsibility in this area is simply crowd control. That's all they're there for, because they're allowing the other people to carry out their duties. Understand one more thing. John chapter 18, looking a little bit ahead to verse 31. At this time, apparently, only Rome, only the civil authorities, interestingly enough, could carry out the death sentence. How do we know that? Verse 31. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your laws. This will get into the religious laws. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. They knew their position. Rome had their laws. The uh, religious authorities, as we will see in a moment, had their laws. And Pilate was basically saying, take him and go according to your laws. You can do what you will. We've given you that permission. But they reminded him of one thing. Wait a minute. We do not have the authority to put him to death. 
and that's really what they were interested in. So for that, they're going to have to go to the Roman authorities. That is why you're going to have a number of trials that also take place. Now, what about the religious authorities? So Rome's in power from the beginning of the verse. The other authorities, you see the offices of the Jews in verse 12. Okay, the Jews were the religious authorities. Rome had granted them permission to function. They could have squashed that, as some countries do today. But they had given, a, just like we have in this country, we have the rights, and you need to understand that. It's not just Christianity. In this country, people have the right to practice religion and the freedom of religion. Whether or not we agree with or you agree with personally a certain religion, they have the right in this country to practice it with the protection of the government. That's provided. Okay? And it was the same way with this. The Jews had the right and could function. They were the people of God. By the Old Testament, we know that. They were also to represent God. And I want you to catch this again. Just like with the civil government, listen, the religious government, whoever they were that were in authority, and I'll talk about that in a second, their primary responsibility was justice, was to carry out as a representative of God the justice over the people to whatever extent civil government allowed them to conduct business. Whatever that business was, they would have conducted it according to justice. I want you to see this. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16. I think so often this is overlooked and we need to see it. I believe when you get this in your mind fixed, as we continue through, you're just going to see how great the mockery was of even the leaders and of the government. In Deuteronomy, the 16th chapter, I just want to hit a couple of verses. I will pick it up in verse 18. This was in the law given to Moses as the point of governing religiously. And, of course, they had the civil power. And I'm not going to go into all of that. But as they governed the people, here were some guidelines. Verse 18. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, see, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and watch. They shall judge the people with righteous judgments. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. Any of this ring bells? For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Verse 20. Justice and only justice is the way it is in English. It's justice and justice alone is the idea. That's what it's going. Verse 20, you shall pursue. Why? Purpose. That you may live and possess the land which the Lord gives, the Lord your God is giving you. And they were clearly instructed, those who are appointed as the authorities over the religious area, you are to focus, and I'm not taking the time to look at a lot of other things there, but here's the two primary focuses. One was to maximize justice and fairness. We are not going to see that in the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, you will find that the laws that God put down 
was also to maximize something else. Listen carefully. Mercy. The laws were put down to maximize mercy and understand that. Secondly, one thing that I should turn us to is I want you to see that there was also warnings giving, given excuse me, to the religious leaders. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19. I really believe if you see this, it is going to help you to understand rather than just hearing, well, the Lord's uh, trials were a mockery. Why? Well, the religious leaders were told that to maximize judges, uh, justice, they were responsible to God. They weren't to accept bribes. We already know that they did that. They weren't to be partial. Watch this one. Deuteronomy chapter 19, and I'm only giving you some highlights here. Verses 15 forward. Watch this. And this may help those of you that have heard you need two witnesses and so forth. Watch. Verse 15. A single witness you shall not, uh, shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. You can't take one alone. Now watch this, verse 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute will stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who will be in office in those days. And in our text, it is the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin. I will talk about that in a second. And then watch. He goes on. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witnesses, a witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Let me stop there. That is frightening. Somebody comes in and says a false accusation, and it's proven the person was wrong. Whatever the intent was, and if it's murder, or if it's the death penalty, you take it and give it to that person. I wonder what that would do to people making false accusations today. You want to see something else? Let's go on. Then he goes on. Am I in verse 19, I think? Yes, 19. Then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That's the objective, to purge it among them. The rest will hear and be afraid. It's a deterrent, folks. And will never again do an evil thing among you. You carry out justice like this, and I want you to catch the next verse. Thus you shall not pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And I'm going to tell you something right now. How many times have you seen that verse used out of context? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Do you know what the context of that is? Here is the context. False accusations. That's the context of that verse. It isn't just get back even. The point is, if you've got somebody that's going to falsely accuse somebody of something else, and they wanted to take an eye, take theirs out. A tooth, take it out. A life, take their life. 
Let them see the seriousness. It was designed for mercy. The religious law was designed for justice. It was designed for, to protect people. And it was a warning against those who would just maliciously try to accuse somebody who was innocent. And we already know the Lord Jesus Christ was the most innocent person on the face of the earth. And these religious leaders are supposed to be abiding by these laws that we're reading. They had to have two credible witnesses. Let me give you some other things. They were to have a public trial. They couldn't do it privately and in secret. The, the accuser, according to the law, and I don't want to get into all the detail. I wanted you to see those passages, though. According to the law, they, the, the accuser was allowed to a, def, a defense. He was allowed to call eyewitnesses. They were to present their witnesses and their evidence, and it was to be thoroughly investigated. This was to maximize justice, to prevent biasness and prejudices. It was to warn against bribes, and it was to protect against illegality. Now, interestingly enough, in our text, you've heard the word Sanhedrin in the New Testament. <clears throat> Let me, for time's sake, get there and tell you a little bit about it without turning to the reference. The Sanhedrin was, in the day of Jesus Christ, the governing body. Now, where did it come from? I won't turn there, but it came from Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Mark it down if you want to check it out on your own. And what you had in that particular place was it goes all the way back to the days of Moses. He was to have 70 people that would assist him plus him. That made it 71. And it was purposely odd so that there could be a ruling done. And those 70 that would help Moses would help him in judgment so that they could give a fair and just judgment. In time, if you were to trace it down through 1 Chronicles, for example, chapter 24, you'd find out that eventually, because the priestly tribes were pretty expanded, that you find this, that there were to be 24 that were to represent the priestly tribes, and then 46 of them would be either scribes, Pharisees, or Sadducees, as they were known in the New Testament. That totaled 70. And then there was to be the high priest. He was acting, if you will, like Moses. So that they were to have 70 people that were representing all the tribes of Israel as a religious and the high priest. At the time of Christ, this was the priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, plus the high priest. One of the things that was different in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, though, that's important for us to realize, is Israel could appoint those people themselves. That was not true in the day of Rome. In Rome's day, because they were the governing authorities, they chose themselves that they wanted to control the high priest. So they were the ones that actually appointed Annas and Caiaphas and so forth that we read about. So they had control over the, the if you will, the deciding vote and the one that was ruling over the other 70. And that's a fact that was in existence at the time, which comes out of the, our Bible as well. Let me give you some additional guidelines just very quickly, this comes from their own rabbinical writings, uh, just so you understand again the magnitude. According to their own writings, no criminal trials, which Jesus Christ is going to be taken in for, could go on in the nighttime. That's interesting. When there was a trial and a criminal defense was supposed to be had, 
In order to be heard, the case had to present dates, times, and locations. Without that, the case would not be heard. If the charges were brought, listen to this one, rabbinical writings. If the charges were bought, uh, brought by any one of the council members, any one of them, the whole council had to be replaced for that particular trial. None of them could serve and listen to it. Who's bringing the charges here? Hmm. If a death penalty was involved, isn't this interesting? Number one, the sentencing and the death could never take place in the same day in case there was a mistake. In a death penalty, in the case of the Jewish religion, one day was allowed for fasting so that the people could sleep on it before the sentencing was given. Why? Because when they reconvened, if anyone on the council would overturn it, they would not carry out the death penalty. None of that was observed. They would take another poll. They could never overturn an innocent case. They could only overturn a death sentence. Thus, we see just from what I said to you this morning as we're going into this passage, and you're going to watch for this, they were supposed to, again, represent God, be completely objective, and be exercising justice. And when any witness is presented, if there's a false charge whatsoever, they were to get the same sentence as they were looking for on the accused. Is that what happens? Well, look at our setting. Verse 12 again. Here's the arrest. Chapter 18, verse 12, and verse 13. They bind him. That was common. He was bound. The soldiers were there. And by the way, you notice that the soldiers, after he's arrested and they see that it's taken place, they're going to leave and they're going to let the Jews carry out their religious activity. The time, it's still evening. How do we know that? Look at verse 28 of, verse eight of chapter 18. And they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, watch this, so that they would not be defiled. What a mockery. What a mockery. So it's during the night when they're not even supposed to hear a trial like this. And they're the leaders. They take him to a private home. We know that from verse 13. And they take him to Annas first. Okay? This allowed for what? I want you to understand the context again. The Sanhedrin was not gathered together yet. Caiaphas would have been over that. And this is going to allow them time to get everybody assembled so that they can try Jesus Christ. So the retired, if you will, and that's what he was, retired high priest entertains the Lord Jesus Christ and performs his own trial so that, why? It will appear to be legal, hopefully, that it won't take place before daybreak. Interesting. And the first trial that takes place is before Annas, and that's in verses 13, 14, and then 19 to 23. I want you to understand that Annas, went, they went to him first, and if you look at verse 19, it says the high priest then questioned Jesus. Sometimes a little confusing in the English. He's still talking about Annas, because Annas doesn't bring him till verse 24 to Caiaphas. 
They had the respect for the office. He was, in effect, the retired high priest. And unfortunately, he was wielding power that he should not have wielded. And in fact, as we look at the text, obviously, he still had that respect. And it was like one that we give for our presidents. Let's say we have a president, and we do have several that are living. We say former president so-so and former president so-so. Yes, but they are not the president. The only one that really wields the power is President Obama. It is really unfortunate when people in this country go to President Carter, former President Carter, or somebody else. You know what? Get all the opinions you want from them, but they are not the power. And that's not to play a power struggle. The point is, he was interfering and causing problems. And he was the one contributing when he should have, if anything, had the influence to go to Caiaphas and saying, this is not legal. So what happens is his five sons after him had served, and now his son-in-law is serving. It's a total situation of nepotism, number one. Number two, appointed, as I already said, by the Roman government. All of this is illegal. And you'll notice, by the way, you get down to verse 19. It's during the night. He questions him about his teaching. He questions him about his disciples. Anything wrong with that? No, in the sense that Jesus Christ had been open, and that's what he says. The Lord Jesus Christ had the right response. He didn't need to defend himself. He said, I've taught. He knew the law. I've taught openly. Go find out what it is. I didn't teach anything in secret. And then what happens as a result of that? He is stricken. Is that legal? Absolutely not. But what you have is one of the officers, again, in an illegal trial before someone who's not even in power anymore. And he's the one trying to get him to be accused. Totally unjust. Totally unrepresentative of what God would have. And by the way, he knew it. How do you know that? Because you'll notice after he struck, the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 23 says, if I've spoken wrongly, then you testify. But if not, why do you strike me? He knew that the actions of Annas was totally out of line. First of all, Annas was not part of the Sanhedrin. Secondly, that authority even before God was gone. Thirdly, what he was doing was illegal. It was in the night. He had no right to be giving a trial. And even if he was, he was not doing it in a legal fashion, all in the name of representing God. How unjust. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ do? But today, that's what I want you to leave with. We'll talk about the witnesses in the second trial next week. Because when he gets before Caiaphas, you're going to see that it's them that is directing to get this guy, that guy, this guy, that guy, and they can't even line up the stories. Well, what were they supposed to do? We just looked at it. Take them out and kill them. They didn't do that. They kept going, they kept going, they kept going. So that's a lot of technological, I mean, uh, technical detail, Pastor Dan. What do we get from that? Just how hard man's heart is. When man wants to accomplish something, we are so sinful. Do you understand what Jeremiah says? Do you understand why all men are sinners and come short of the glory of God? Let's be honest. When we want something, we do everything that we can to get it or to accomplish it. 
We do. Even if it's not right. And sometimes even as believers, we do that. Why? Because we're sinful. Because we're sinful. You want to see the depth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the irony? By the way, this is the Messiah. Who are they supposed to be looking for? The Messiah. You would think they'd be full of joy and really trying to find out. They've seen his miracles. They want to crucify him. Go with me to Isaiah 53. You understand the love of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is just to give you the depth before we get into it of what was supposed to take place. Rome is allowing them to carry this out. They can't carry out the death penalty. They were supposed to do it in justice, not supposed to do it during the night. They're supposed to find out detail, not supposed to accept the testimony of people who can't line up their stories. They can't bring anything ahead themselves. Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken, a man, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men would hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Now we could look at verse 4. We're going to do that in a second. But jump down to verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. We just saw the beginning of that this morning. And he did not open his mouth. As a lamb, let me remind you of the words of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Not meaning that there wouldn't be any more sin with man. The one that would bear the consequence and the sentence of sin. Verse 7. And like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he didn't open his mouth. You say, well, he opened his mouth in response today. You got the picture. Go back to verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, Jewish people, yet we ourselves, Gentile people, yet we ourselves, all mankind, what? Esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. There's still those who just want to resist. Say he got what he deserved. We're only in the early stages. No, he doesn't get what he deserved. But the love of our Savior was so great that he was so focused on the cup of verse 11 in our text of chapter 18 that he was willing to go to the cross and already, within a matter of minutes, allowing maybe for an hour now, there's been absolute total violation of everything that the Old Testament stood for and told in violation even by the Roman government in everything has gone contrary and the Lord Jesus Christ is so focused on what? 
a cup that he's going to bear. If you are here today and have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, I don't really think we can understand the depth of that love. This is just the practical stuff in all of the violations. And yet, if that were you or me, we would have been fighting tooth and nail all the way. But his focus was on the fact of God's love for you. You know why? Because Romans says, listen, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were helpless, Christ died for us. That's what we're seeing. Totally unjust, yes. But he didn't get lost in the injustice. He got focused on who was in control. He got focused on what he was doing. And so that he would become, according to Isaiah 53, verse 4, smitten of God, the just for the unjust. The sinless one for those who have sinned. So if you're here today and you're without sin, you may think, and you're not, but if you think that, you don't need a Savior. But if you're here and understand that what God says is true, that all men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God, then you need the Savior. It is this one, this one that is going to face these trials. And this is only the first one this morning. We'll look at the second one next week with Caiaphas. Beginning in the first trial, has faced this willingly submitting to the Father because his focus was to bear the penalty in price for sin. Why? Out of love, so that as many as would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. Have you trusted in him today? Yet? If you haven't, that's why our appeal goes there. And that's why if a government says you can't express that, you go on expressing it. You don't worry about their injustice because the world needs that good news. The good news of Jesus Christ paying the penalty and price for sin. And if you say, I have trusted in that, then this ought to stir us up to more boldness because though I didn't get to the text today, Second Peter says very clearly this, that in his suffering like this and in bearing our sins in his own body on the tree, earlier on in that chapter, and we'll see it next week, Lord willing, it says this, that he was an example. He was an example that we're going to suffer. We're going to face difficulty. We don't know what might come our way. It was sung today, God makes no mistakes. Sometimes in our lives as Christians, we think he does. We feel he really does. He missed something somewhere. I don't know what burdens God will bring my way or your way that we're yet to face. But if you've trusted in Christ, you can be assured you can lean on him. Trust in him. He is a refuge. God makes no mistakes. All things do work together for good, to the glory of God. And his purposes will be accomplished even when it looks like the darkest hour. Because that's what happened with Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I know there's been a lot of information today, but I think it's essential in helping us to understand what was going on here. The very people of God who were supposed to be exercising 
justice representing God made a mockery and will continue to do so in the pages as we turn them in the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as bad as that is, Father, we are so encouraged by the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ to your will, by the Lord Jesus Christ willingly, even in the midst of injustice, going to the cross of Calvary and like a lamb before the slaughter, Father, bearing the sins and penalties of what we deserve. For those of us who have trusted in Christ helped us to be stirred up, to be encouraged by that extent of the love. For anyone that does not know Christ, help them at least to see with their eyes the mockery that went on here and how man does try to accomplish what he wants to accomplish even when he twists the laws for his own benefit. But yet, Father, you see it all. And even through man's actions, it still turned to good in that the Savior suffered for the penalty of our sin. Father, there isn't a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl that's not in need of a Savior, not in need of your grace. But still many have not come, and we know that many won't come. But Father, it's our prayer that you'd continue to open up eyes, that you'd continue to help people see that the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only one that can take away sins and that they would trust in him. Guide us now this day and throughout the week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.